I think it was this time 10 years ago when uh, we had just built the building and Doug Porter, a member of our church, came to me, stood right down here, and he said, Pastor Steve, I have seen Jesus. Have you seen him? I didn't know what he meant. But he said that he'd seen him actually on this wall, this granite wall, or rather this marble wall that is behind me. And I remember the day when they had placed these stones the way they were. And so Doug, he stood back there. He said, I can't reach the place where I see him. But he started with his fingers to outline the image of Jesus on the wall. Well, you know how it is sometimes when someone's trying to explain something to you and you know you're never going to get it. So pretty soon you start being polite. You just look at them and nod and go, sure. Oh, yes. Yeah. And what you're thinking is you're sniffing glue and I'm never. But sure, if it will help me get through this conversation more quickly, I'm all for it. Uh, And so he went away. And I must have looked for this a hundred times. I saw not a thing. Until one day, I was sitting right down here in the middle of a worship service, and I saw it. You're going to kill me if I don't show you. This is it right here. This is the one. You see the back of his head right here. You see the front of his face. There's his beard right there with sideburns. Well, he's kind of white, so it's probably not him. And then this is a little ear right in there. This whole square right there was Jesus. And when I saw it, I am like went Pentecostal, which for someone from the Dutch Reformed is just raising one hand. But I about lost it. I just about lost myself. I went, my goodness, there he is. The rest of the day was shot for me. But I walked away with a couple of questions. One is, why is it every time we see somebody with a beard, it's Jesus? <laughs> Abraham Lincoln had a beard. David Letterman has a beard. But no one ever looks at a piece of toast. And when an image appears, says, well, that must be David Letterman. They say, no, that must be Jesus. When really there's no reason to connect it with the figure, except that he is the most famous person in the world. And the other thing that bothered me was that every time one allegedly sees an image of Jesus, whether on a water tower in Ohio, a piece of toast in Wyndham, New York, on a truck window in Texas, on someone's tie-dyed (laughs) t-shirt out west, whenever that face appears, it is supposed to be even more proof. If you've walked with God for more than a week, You know that there are ways of knowing that are not cognitive. There are things about him only love can teach you. You know that there are ways of hearing his voice that are louder than audible. And there are ways of seeing him through the eyes of your heart. And that those ways are perhaps the most convincing, the most indelible. Some have called seen to unseen for this reason the peak of all of the seven shifts. I don't know whether that's true or not. I guess that depends upon you. But the thing I came to tell you this morning is that if... Seen to unseen is the peak of the shifts. Then seeing Jesus 
is the peak of seen to unseen. Let me say that in slow motion. In the last five or six weeks, you may have come and started thinking that if you can just make the shift from seen to unseen, you'll experience all of these wonderful benefits. Maybe you'll have a more prophetic voice. Maybe you'll be able to sit in a meeting and discern things that you couldn't discern before. Maybe you'll be able to read people, what they're thinking or their inherent value. And all of these things may be true, but there is nothing higher than seeing Jesus as he is. Not as you imagine him to be. Not as you've heard about him. As he is. Because when you see Jesus as he is, you worship like you ought. It could be that some of our problem with worship today has nothing to do with the music, has little to do with the preaching, has almost nothing to do with the structures or the personalities on the platform. No, the reason worship is so dang boring for some people and so awkward for others and so pressure for everyone on the platform is because we have failed to see Jesus as he is. And in the deficiency of seeing, when you can't see Jesus like he is, you need all of these other props to carry the movement along. But the moment you see him as he is, you fall at his feet and you worship. It's guttural. It's primal. It's genuine, it's raw, it's unscripted, and there is no other response. So it's appropriate that the story in John 9 ends in worship. <laughs> Jesus found the man in the temple and said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man said, Sir, tell me who he is, so that I may believe. And Jesus said, you see him. And the one speaking to you right now is he. And without any prompts, the man went straight over in worship. There is nothing else to do in a moment like that. So this sermon that I wrote today was going to take that direction until I discovered rather late in my study something uneasy, unsettling about this story, and it just gnaws at me this morning. I have no way to articulate it except to raise a question that I cannot answer. Frustrates me because I'd love to give you practical steps, but I think if I did, I'd wreck it. First, the uneasiness. What struck me about the story in John chapter 9 is that it is all of the other miracles of the blind receiving their sight, it's all of those miracles thrown in reverse. In all of the other miracles, the first person the blind sees is Jesus. In this one, it's the last person the man sees. 
in all of the other miracles, the blind know full well who he is, and so they go looking for him. But not in this one. The man has his eyes open, and he's still never seen him, and he doesn't know who he is. Who opened your eyes, they ask him. <laughs> this man, they call Jesus. Well, where is he? He says, I don't know. In all the other miracles, faith is the key element. It's the one thing you need and lack. But in this one, assumptions are the problem. It's the one thing you have and need to get rid of. And so in all of the other miracles, Jesus is a miracle worker. But in this one, he is the dividing line. He is the separation, the place where history separates. In all the other miracles, he has come to open the eyes of the blind. But in this miracle, he has come to close the eyes of those who think they can see. In this miracle, Jesus, all by himself, is the difference between seeing and being blind. If you see him as he is, you can see. If you think you know who he is, you are still blind. Now the question. Have you ever seen him? You ever been in a room where the presence of Christ was so real you could touch it? You want to leave, but you want to stay. You feel filthy, and yet, you feel clean. You don't belong, and yet you do. He is so far above you, and yet he envelops you. Have you ever been in a room when Jesus entered that room? There are in the Old Testament stories of people who, who, who saw God. I want to be one of them for the longest time if I could stand it. There was Isaiah, wasn't there? In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. I went into the temple minding my own business, and suddenly I saw the Lord, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and the doorposts began to rattle under the weight of his authority. And I fell in front of him. And I said, woe is me. I am dirty and undone. And he motioned for an angel to take one of the coals from the altar and to touch my mouth. And when he did, he scarred me for the rest of my life. From this day on, I would talk over a scar that I got in the temple. And that voice said to me, you were clean. Then I heard a voice say, who will we send and who will go for us? <laughs> that was a no-brainer. 
I said, here am I. Send me. Oh, I've wanted a day like that. Daniel said it was three weeks while he was praying, and he saw nothing, and suddenly he turned around, and there was one like the Son of Man right in front of him. Jacob said he was out in a field, and the ladder came down, and he saw angels descending and ascending, and he said when he awoke, he changed the name of the place because he said it is here I have seen the Lord and lived. I've lived. Moses was in some crack in a rock, but all of a sudden God walked by and with the palm of his hand covered him so he could not see. And then just before God left, Moses caught a glimpse of his back. We look at these episodes in the Old Testament as if they were somehow the norm, and so when some, or they were somehow extraordinary. And so whenever someone like me stands up and says, has you ever seen the Lord? You're thinking in your mind, yeah, right. <laughs> me and about five others, Steve. Can I remind you, you live after Pentecost, not before it. David talked of a day when he wanted to go into the temple where he hoped he lived. And listen to what he says in Psalm 27, verse 4. There I hope to gaze upon the face of the Lord. Now, either he has expectations or else he's just using figures of speech. But then Isaiah comes along a few years later in chapter 33, verse 17, and he says, In that day you will see the king of glory, and you will see a land from afar. Then Jesus comes along and says, If you're pure in heart, you see God. Jesus says, If you love me and you obey me, Wait for it. I will come to you, and I will show myself to you. He said, the world does not believe in the Spirit because it neither sees him nor knows him, comma. But you know him, for he will be with you, and he will be in you. Yes, it's possible. In fact, it might be even common. In fact, it might be the normal Christian life to see Jesus all over. Because the Holy Spirit is in you and with you. And when you see him as he is, do you know what you will see? you will see one who is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He is the firstborn over all creation. Let me translate that for you. Everything that you know this morning, everything you have packed into your head, everything that you're working on and you can't wait for church to end so you can get back to it is somewhere between the beginning and the end. And you don't know what you're doing until you know where it started. And you don't know what it's worth until you know how it ends. When you see the beginning and you see the end, it brings wonderful perspective to everything else 
that you say you know. Have you ever seen him? Have you ever seen him? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were made, things in heaven, things on earth, things visible, things invisible, whether thrones, powers, dominions, or rulers, all things were made by him and for him. Not spiritual things. All things. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, such that if he were to remove his hand, the law of chaos would take over, and everything you consider a law would disintegrate. He is that active. He is the Word that was with the Father at the beginning. Without Him, nothing has been made that was made. He dwelled among us. We beheld His glory, the glory of the one and only sent from the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the exact radiance the exact representation of God's being. And his name is superior to the name of any angel. He never considered it robbery to be equal to God. But he made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him such that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, willingly or unwillingly. Every knee will bow, and it will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. I can't see it. And you can't see it. And I'll tell you why. It's our culture. Our culture keeps us from seeing him as he is. Our culture has reduced this Jesus I just cited to a mere religion. It has taught us that he is one way among many ways to apprehend God. Just this last week, I was reading a letter by Symmachus that was written in 384 AD. Symmachus was a Roman prefect. He was a Roman senator over a city. And he wrote a letter to Valentinius II. And he wanted the emperor to put up a new statue of the goddess Victoria. 384 AD, Christianity was the dominant religion of Rome. Just like most Americans think it's the dominant religion of America. And Symmachus was writing a letter to say, you need to make room for other religions. And this is what he said. He said, sir, do we not all look at the same stars? Do we not all live under the same sun? 
What does it matter to us how a person perceives or apprehends ultimate reality? I thought I was reading something from a page of 2018 in the United States. This is the dominant idea. It would be unloving and arrogant for me to assume that Jesus was better than other religions. And of course, of course, the problem with all of that is that Jesus said some things that cannot be translated in any other way. Let me tell you what he said, and he knew exactly what he was saying. He said in John chapter 5, no one knows the Father except the Son. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so does the Son give life. Wait for it. To whomever he is pleased to give it. Moreover, said Jesus, the Father, God, as you call him, judges no one. He has entrusted all judgment to the Son, comma, so that men may honor the Son like they honor the Father. For he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Philip, have you been with me three years and you still do not know who I am? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. For I am in the Father and the Father is inside of me. There is no other way to interpret this. And yet Christians, Christians all over America today believe in Jesus without believing these things about him because we, we are afraid of being arrogant and unloving, not knowing that what makes us arrogant and unloving is not our beliefs. It isn't arrogant and unloving if you're right. You may be right and arrogant and unloving. But your problem then is a flaw other than your doctrine. It isn't your beliefs. It's your dogmatism. It's your personality that you need to adjust. Hold on to your beliefs. I can't see Jesus because I am immersed in a culture that is reducing him to a religious idea. I can't see Jesus because of religion, because of the Christian religion. I need it. It gives me structure and movement and timing and language and categories. And so I was raised in the Christian religion. But there are times when it gets in the way. I'm losing some of you. I can tell. Stay with me. 
The Christian religion will teach you how to believe in Jesus. But as the man born blind shows us, you can believe in Jesus and have all the right language and still never seen him. You can believe in him without ever meeting him. You can have language for him. He's a prophet. He is one sent from God. He must be the son of man. But that's not the same thing as being in a room when he walks in and you see him with the eyes of your heart. John was on the island of Patmos. It's a prison colony. It's a Sunday morning, and he hears a voice behind him. And the voice says, what you're about to see in the sky, write it down in a scroll and send it to these seven churches. John said, I turned around to see the voice that was talking to me. And I was not prepared for this. There was one, he said, whose hair was white like wool. His robe came down to his feet. Wait for it. His eyes were like fire. And when he spoke, it sounded like the Niagara Falls. And his tongue looked like a sword that divided things. And I fell at his feet as dead. Tom Torrance reminds us that the one who turned around and saw him had walked with him, even up the Mount of Transfiguration. There's probably not anything you know about Jesus that John didn't know first. In fact, he wrote some of it. He had all of the categories that you have. He had all the language, all the miracles that you believe in. But when he turned around that day, he was not ready for one who defied categories. So I'm not asking you if your belief system is right. I'm not asking you if you got the right language or if you practice this or practice that. I just want to know, have you ever been in a room when God came into the room and defied your categories. There's nothing wrong with the language theology taught me, but sometimes it is too small. It's just too small. And I get stuck in the language. I can't believe, I can't see because of the culture and because of my religion. Here's the last, I can't see because of me. I keep projecting my personality onto him. Jesus, the holiness preacher. Jesus, the revolutionary. Jesus, the good Catholic. Jesus, the slave. Jesus, the gay person. Jesus, the person that never fits in. That's me, Jesus. Scott McKnight teaches New Testament in a school in Illinois. He said, every year, the first day of class, I give my students a test. I ask them to guess the personality of Jesus so with a series of questions, we articulate the personality of the Jesus they believe in. The second half of the test is I shift the questions a little bit and ask them to define their own personality. 
voila. Everyone is just like Jesus. Jesus is just like everyone. Listen to what McKnight writes. He said, most of us would like to convince you that we are being conformed to the image of Christ. In fact, the opposite is true. He is being conformed to our image. We are not finding our place in his narrative. He writes, we are forcing his narrative to find a place in ours. So what started out as a call for redemption ends up being narcissism. End quote. Have you ever been in a room? Have you ever heard a voice that spoke your language that was so deeply embedded inside of you that you were familiar with it? Wait for it. And yet that same voice called you out. Paul said, I heard a voice speaking to me in Hebrew. That's my language. Yet the voice said things to me I would never say. It said, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul said, I got up off the ground. I was dead blind. They led me into a city. I went into a house, and a man named Ananias placed his hands on me. And when he touched my face, something like scales fell from my eyes, and I started to see him as he is. And when I saw him as he is, I saw all things. Man, I had theology. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a good Pharisee. But when I saw him as he is, it all came into focus. Have you ever seen that? I remind you, Saul's conversion was not a typical conversion. This was not a sinner becoming a saint. This was a man leaving one religion and going to another. It was a man self-assured of his righteousness, suddenly humbled when he saw a vision of Christ stretched out before him and he realized he was persecuting the wrong people. Well, I'd love to stand up here and say, uh, so here's how you do it. But if I did that, if I gave you instructions... I'm afraid you might follow them. And then what you saw would not be him. But I have noticed in my encounters with God, I have been in rooms when he came in. And it was never the result of what I did. It was always on his own. And he was never what I thought he was going to be. He was always more. I've noticed there are patterns, church. I can't tell you how to do it. I'm a better guide to tell you how to miss it. But I've noticed this. The more familiar I get with the Scripture, the more likely I am to see him. Let me say that in slow motion. 
If you remain to this day mostly ignorant of Scripture, if all you know are bits and pieces or verses on a wall or maybe verse for the day on your app, the chances of you running into Jesus of Nazareth high and lifted up, the one that Christ himself or God himself has exalted, are slim to none. He might surprise you, but why make him work like that? The disciples said, did not our hearts rattle within us when he opened the scripture? And yet, generation after generation after generation of Christians, preachers for crying out loud, remain ignorant of the scripture. One of the first times I saw him, I was reading the Bible, reading, 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 and I got nothing from it. I took the New Testament in a small little church in Michigan, and I threw it into the front pew, frustrated and angry. Then I heard a voice say, read it again, read it again, read it again. I've read it, I said, I know what it says, read it again, read it again. I picked it up. And I read it again. And this time I read it from the other side of those words. And I felt the intensity of those words. And I'd missed them. I'd missed them all along. And I'd memorized the verse and I missed it. It isn't whether you know the verse, it's which side of the words you're on. When you read it, some of you know what I'm talking about. You pick up a verse the rest of us consider meaningless, and God lights that thing of fire for you. Uh, he hangs around Scripture. He hangs around the sacrament. The disciples said their eyes were opened when he broke the bread. I don't see him every time we serve communion, but I've seen him sometimes. Oh, man. On World Communion Sunday. I've seen him, as Bud said a couple of nights ago, in the faces of the poor and impoverished. I worry about this because I think sometimes in a social justice culture like this, Jesus is attached to the poor and impoverished. But you'll, maybe you'll agree. If you won't, you'll school me afterwards. But it seems sometimes we've so attached Jesus to the poor and the least of these that he never gets out of those categories. Let me tell you something. He is at least the least of these. But he is so much more. So much more. Now, church, we are the children of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know this. When he appears... We will be like him. For we will see him as he.
Anyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. So, since Jesus is the peak of seen to unseen and since worship is the outcome of Jesus, and since I don't know how to sing, the group's going to join in me in a minute. But as they come, may I prepare you for what it is you are about to worship. And then I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll? There was no one in heaven or earth could open it or even look inside of it. I wept. And I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll. And one of the elders said to me, Don't weep. Mm -mm. See? The lion from the tribe of Judah. He is triumphed. He is able to open the scroll. And then I looked and I saw a lamb. He looked as if he'd been slain, yet he was standing at the center of the throne. He was encircled by living creatures and elders. And he went and he took the scroll from him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the creatures and the elders fell down before the lamb and they started singing a song. This is what they said. You were worthy because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe, every language, every nation, and you made them to be a kingdom, and you made them to be priests to serve our God. And they will reign over the earth. And then I looked, and I heard the voice of angels. There were thousands upon thousands. And thousands times ten thousands and they encircled the throne and they said in a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain he will receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise and then I heard every creature in all of creation in heaven and on earth and every creature that is in them and they sang together to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And all the living creatures bowed down and said, Amen. My friend, if you do your life right, if you live it as God intended, you will make him famous. You will make him famous. They will look right through you. And they will see him magnified in your life.